Hi, this is Georgina Terry. Today we're going to be talking to Mark Newton. Mark is a physiologist with W.L. Gore. You probably know them from Gore-Tex. Uh, we know them a lot, though, for Gore Bikewear. They make a wonderful line of very technical cycling clothing for both men and women. I first met Mark last July at a women's council that was hosted by W.L. Gore, and I was absolutely fascinated by what he had to say about studies he was doing on thermoregulation uh, and how that's eventually going to play into the design of clothing. So hang on, we'll talk to Mark, and I hope you enjoy this. Mark Newton, thanks very much for talking to me today. I know you're, you're calling in all the way from Europe, and I really appreciate that. Uh, as I've told our listeners before, I was fascinated by a talk that you gave at the Gore Women's Council last July, uh, specifically gender differences and their impact on thermal comfort and performance. So, so tell me a little bit about women and temperature control, how they're different from men, uh, and how all this impacts me as a cyclist. Well, what we do, Georgina, is we try to customize our products to the specific needs of our individual customers. And one area we've identified that really hasn't been addressed in the past is the physiology of women and how that differs from the physiology of men. Often, I believe a term that's used in the industry is shrink it and pink it. And we don't believe that fully encompasses or even starts to encompass the differences between men and women. I think we've all experienced um, within our everyday lives when there are conditions that men maybe are warm and women tend to be on the cold side. Uh, within meetings, within conferences, if you look around the average mall, you'll often find that the guys have short sleeves on, while women are dressed in two or three layers in some cases. Uh, there, there are converses to this as well, where sometimes men are actually cold um, and women are warmer, but these tend to be more specific and more specialized. I think one of the things that immediately jumps out to us is women are smaller by nature. We already know that. And therefore, your methods for conserving heat are often different to the appropriate male. Uh, within that, the physiology then tends to adapt itself. And the storage of heat ends up being, or rather, I should say that the the way women store heat is is defended much more than the way men store heat. Does that give you a, a brief introduction to where, where I'm coming from? Yes, it does. Talk about when you say defended more. What do you mean by that? Well, there, there are many... <clears throat> I sh there are many studies currently being approached to try and understand this. One thing we know is that the distribution of fat within women, I'm sorry, but I have to talk as a physiologist here, and as a physiologist, we break people down into their various components and try and understand how those components, or in this case, systems work. Physiology is a study of the body's systems as opposed to anatomy, which is a study of the body's structure. But we, within each of us, have four main layers that, that we break down. 
So we have the surface layer, which we refer to as skin overall. Below that, we have a layer of subcutaneous fat, which has the properties of cork. And so I have somebody knocking on my door. Let me. <laughs> so below that, we have a layer of subcutaneous fat, which have the properties of cork. Below that, we have a layer of muscle. And then we have the core of the body as well. And women have more fat than men. It's just the way it is. It's uh, probably to do with the fact that women are the childbearers, but they have more fat than men. And this, this lasts throughout the whole life cycle. And the way the fat is distributed is much more even than men. So, so women tend to have a more even fat layer than men. They all, because of that, and because of other thermoregulatory effects, they also have the ability to pull the blood supply back behind that fat layer and therefore defend themselves or ah. provide a layer of insulation that um, men still have, but it's not so effective. And what that allows them to do is then defend their core temperature at the expense of making their shell cold. Okay, that makes more sense then. That's interesting that you compare the layer of fat to being like cork. It has roughly the same thermal properties, yes. Yep. Oh, interesting. That's got to make it interesting in terms of modeling things in the laboratory. If you can't use a human subject, you can use a piece of cork instead. You can't, well, there are subtle differences that we would never do that. But as a first approximation, you could certainly mathematically model it using cork, yes. Interesting. Can, can you speak to the issue of comfort a bit? What, um, I don't know how technical you would like me to get, Georgina, but I can... Uh, well, I, I know when we spoke at Gore, you defined thermal comfort as the absence of discomfort. Right. Okay. So by all means, I can, I can start from that level. Do you, would you like me to go into the physiology of comfort? And yes, please. Okay. All right. So there are, there are many definitions of comfort, and the one that is most used is the absence of discomfort. This is a very simple way of defining a lack of feeling. Unfortunately for us, it doesn't really help us too much. We use metrics in performance to measure how well we're doing. How long do we run? How fast do we run? How high can we jump? These kind of things allow us to measure the performance of individual people. Uh, when, we, when we try to understand comfort, the one thing that everybody comes back to is it's a lack of discomfort or a lack of distraction. It's an absence of something. It's only when you feel something do you then start feeling uncomfortable. So there's a dictionary of language that describes discomfort, but there's really nothing that describes comfort from a consumer level. On a physiological level, there are standards for discomfort. There are clinical standards which set both body core temperature and body skin temperature um, within set ranges, and those tend to vary roughly half a degree um, either side of the normal 
core temperature, if, you, if there is such a thing, which of course there isn't. But uh, for, for most people, that's around about 37 degrees C. Yes, and I believe that's about 98.6 Fahrenheit, is it that's not? That's correct. Yes, it is. Yep. Now, of course, your skin is always lower, and the skin will allow much wider changes in temperature before it goes into discomfort. However, it is those two components that are really driving our perception. And, and as we all come across in the world, it's often not the world that changes, it's our perception of the world that changes the way we see it. And this is the case with comfort. So as well as those two things, we must not be shivering, we must not be sweating, and we must be fully peripherally vasodilated, which means our blood flows traveling to our extremities and our skin as well. And if you use that definition of specific core temperature around 37, skin temperature somewhere around 34 to 35, no shivering, no sweating, fully peripherally vasodilated, you now have a clinical definition of comfort. And that would apply to men as well as women? Men as well as women. Yes, it would. Um, there are some subtle differences, but in general, that, that's the one that's used. Now, unfortunately, that probably is not a good definition for every day, because what we know is there are certain things that can happen there um, that move out of those ranges where you can still be defined as comfortable. And you can sometimes be in that range where you can be said to be thermally uncomfortable. We know rate of change, for instance, is something the body really latches onto. So it's not absolute, it's the way, the rate at which the body's functions, uh, the body's systems are changing that can often be the first indicator towards comfort. And so, as I said earlier, there is there's really a dictionary of language that describes discomfort. I'm hot, I'm cold, I'm clammy, I'm sweaty. But if you try and think about words that describe comfort, what are you feeling when you're comfortable? There's really very little to grasp onto there. So for simplicity's sake, we will often keep that clinical definition and use it to try and then understand when the differences between men and women, i.e. when women may sweat, or men may sweat, when women may shiver versus when men may shiver, and try and understand the mechanisms behind those. So if I understand, one of the things you might be saying here is that, that women may fall out of that comfort range differently than men do? Indeed, indeed. And I'm sure we've all come across this where, be it you're a man or a woman, there are people around you who are feeling the opposite of what you're feeling right now. Mm -hmm. So it may be within a set condition, there is no single ambient temperature. There was a huge piece of work done on this by many scientists to try and define the correct ambient conditions for comfort. Of course, the air heating and air conditioning engineers would love to find that. And what they found, of course, was there is no normal temperature in which we're all comfortable. If we set it around roughly 21 degrees C, which is ooh, 72 Fahrenheit, yes, roughly. That, um, then there will be a significant portion of the population that are comfortable. 
there will also be a significant portion who are cold and some people who are hot. So there is no ideal temperature. And what we then like to understand is what are the preferences that are driving your preferred temperature? Within that, you almost always see that men's perception of their environment is warmer than that of women. So men are not in different environments. They just perceive it as being different. Now, this could be because there is difference in skin temperature. It could be differences in core temperature. It could just be a difference in the way we perceive or our sensitivity to temperature. So all things being the same around your uh, physical physiology, you may have a difference in your neurology that means that for your average body temperature being 36.5 degrees C, your perception of 36.5 degrees C is different to mine. Mm-hmm. Now, there, there are also, as I, as I say, I like to come back to this one a lot because it's real. Our perception of the world changes rather than the world itself changing. And I can give you some good examples of this in both physiology and, and other aspects. One thing is, as we may have all come out of the cinema, um, the movies, from a very dark environment to a very light environment. And initially when we do that, the light hurts our eyes. Very quickly after that, we adapt to our environment and the light is now at an adequate level that we enjoy. The light hasn't changed, just our perception of the light has changed. A thermal physiology example of that is when we step into a warm bath. Initially, we perceive that as being really hot. A minute or two later, it's very comfortable. The temperature of the water hasn't significantly changed. Just our response to that temperature has changed. We had an individual center, a thermostat, that described a single temperature which we always try and reach. Now, in essence, we do have a thermostat. We do have an individual center. This is called the hypothalamus. It's located um, at the, the base part of the brain, with, uh, close to the spine. And the hypothalamic region is the body's thermostat. But we don't any longer believe we have a single set point for regulating temperature. The set point is actually multiple points that are brought together. They're skin points, they're core points, they're hypothalamic internal temperatures. We integrate these into a, to a single signal and we then regulate temperature based upon those multiple points. And to do that, we use the inputs from, from our skin um, and our skin, of course, represents our surroundings. <clears throat> and the way in which we adapt to our surroundings is different between men and women. It's also, of course, different within ourselves. For instance, when we get up in the morning, before we get up in the morning, our body starts to raise our internal core temperature. This stimulates activity and when we get up in the morning, we feel fr- fresh and refreshed and, and ready for the day ahead. As the day goes through, 
we we eat our lunch in the afternoon we start to feel a little somber this is actually a low point for the body our body temperatures reduced and also regulated by serotonin as well the temperature is reduced as we come into the evening and just before we go to bed it's probably uh, it's not at its lowest but it's the lowest waking temperature which then drives us to go to sleep because we no longer feel as though we have energy women of course also have the effect of menstrual cycle and throughout their menstrual cycle their core temperature changes significantly sometimes up to two degrees fahrenheit which is is very significant if if you consider core temperatures normal core temperatures being usually quoted as as 98.6 going to 97.6 or 99.6 could in some cases be misconstrued as a fever I can I can also describe to you conditions where we may go up one two two and a half degrees for instance if you're a runner or a a certainly cyclist as well uh, long-distance bikers who really push themselves hard may have internal set temperatures up around 39.5 degrees C um, for competition athletes. Which would be just which, over 101 degrees Fahrenheit, yeah, I think. Which would, in a clinical environment, be termed as a fever. They would be concerned at you having this, this level of temperature. However, your body allows this. It doesn't have to allow it. In most cases, it has the capability to bring that temperature back down again. But an exercise-induced fever is, for whatever reason, a good thing for the body because your body allows that to happen. So this, this perception to temperature will change. While you're cycling, for instance, and you have an elevated temperature, you don't always feel warm, especially if you're doing this in the cold. Your shell may be um, slightly lower than its normal temperature, so you actually might feel good with a significantly elevated temperature. Internal temperature, that is. Internal temperature, right, right. It's interesting. When you, again, going back to the Gore Conference, you, you presented a rough guide for both hypothermic and hyperthermic core temperatures. And, and we've right now been discussing hyperthermic and how a conditioned athlete can tolerate a higher core temperature. I noticed, though, when it came to the hypothermic side, uh, being conditioned, at least you did mention here, conditioning didn't really seem to, to play a part quite as much in lower temperatures. In other in words, when you get cold, it doesn't matter how good you no, are, you're cold. it really doesn't. There are certain adaptations and acclimations that happen at lower temperatures but nothing like those that happen at higher temperatures. There are also there are physiological adaptations that do happen. For instance, immersion into cold water evokes something called a cold shock response. And none of this is my work. It's all been done by very esteemed scientists. The cold shock response is actually what you feel it's what you do when you, you're dropped into cold water. You gasp. It's a gasp reflex. And that gasp reflex happens because of the sudden stimulation, the sudden surge to, to your body's receptors, and you have an involuntary gasp. If I drop you into cold water 10 times, that goes away. So we do physiologically adapt to the cold. 
However, our comfort in the cold does not. And our ability to be able to deal with cold tends not to either. There are, there are circumstances where it does. For instance, if you look at the fingers of um, habitual fishermen who fish in the cold, you'll find they have very, very significant layers of fat that you and I don't around them. But other than that, we don't have short-term adaptations to the cold. So uh, we are typically tropical animals. We like to be in the warm. We have much better equipment to equip us with being in higher temperatures than we do being in lower temperatures. Which, which brings us to the discussion of perspiring or sweating <laughs> and, and how the human body is equipped to do that. Where, what parts of the body tend to, to be most effective of sweating? And as a cyclist on a hot day, how is that going to play into how I dress, whether I use a, a base layer in summer? Should I? Should I reserve that only for winter? What do you, what do you think of that? You asked me, I think, three questions. There, yes, I, I did. I'll try, and, I'll try and address each one. How do we sweat? Why do we sweat? We sweat through mainly thermal stimuli. There, there are some other reasons why we sweat, including stress. You've probably experienced this yourself, where you're taking a test, you're in a round of golf, your hands will tend to sweat. Your feet do that as well, your groin area, your armpits, these, these kind of things happen regularly. But beyond that, I'll discuss thermal sweating. As your body temperature reaches a particular level, which is different for, for everybody, it's controlled not only by your core, but by your local skin temperature as well, you will start to sweat. There are two types of sweat glands. One is located at the base of the hair follicle, and those tend to provide that oily, smelly sweat. The other is uh, diffusion of, or is located on the non-hairy parts of the body. Those tend to provide a more regular, um, what's called hypotonic sweat. So they remove salt as, as they start to sweat, so you don't lose your salt resource. So within the thermoneutral zone, can your I, body... Sorry. Can I back up just a minute? Yes. When you were talking about that sweat gland, you said it removes salt so you don't lose your salt resource? You don't lose as much of your salt resource, right. Okay. Um, within the uh, thermoneutral zone, what happens is your body will tend to divert blood from your core to your shell and from the central part of your body to your extremities. When it can no longer thermoregulate in that passive manner, on the hot side, it will start to sweat. And sweat <clears throat> is the production of liquid water at the surface of the skin. So now you're using a critical body resource. It only does that when it has to. You can sweat up to two liters an hour and the fundamental thing about sweat is it must, must, must evaporate for it to be effective. In the warm, when you're exercising, 90% of all the energy you lose is going to be through sweat. So sweating is probably the most critical method of, it is not probably, it's definitely the most critical method of heat loss for exercise. I'm trying to 
remember what the second question well, was. Well, we talked about, you know, there's a recommendation sometimes to wear a base layer, mm. even in summer, because it wicks sweat away from the body and transfers it out. And sometimes I find that. a base layer in summer to be comfortable. Sometimes I find it to be onerous. Yeah, I think many of us, when we first start to exercise in the cold, overdress. I believe, although I have no data to support this, I believe that's probably more typical, though, for women than it is men. Yes, because I know the adage is that you should you should be dressed a little on the cool side because you're going to get warmed up once you start exercising. But I feel, and I think many women feel, if I walk out the door and I'm cold, I'm not going on this bike ride. Right. <laughs> so I right. will overdress and peel things off. As you have, yep, exactly that. Now, the issue with overdressing, it's okay as long as you'll stop and peel things off. Some of us won't. And then, of course, we end up oversweating and overheating. Wicking can be good, but only if you have a two-directional wicking. You're not looking to remove the sweat from the skin in terms of balancing your thermal physiology. You don't want wet skin, but the reason your skin is wet is because you are sweating because you have an excess of heat. In order to remove that excess of heat, you have to evaporate the sweat. And this is the, the most important thing. So if the whole of your skin is sweating, there is no need for a wicking layer. It's really much more important to be able to evaporate it. So you have to have a, a breathable layer over the outside Otherwise, what's going to happen is you're going to sweat, not be able to evaporate the sweat. Therefore, your body temperature is going to continue to increase. Therefore, you'll produce more sweat, and it's going to get wetter and wetter. You're going to use more of that body resource. You're going to become more hydrated. And hydration, of course, is the number one key absolute thing for athletes these days. The reason you underperform, the reason you feel bad, the reason you're tired after exercise there is something to do with muscle fatigue there, but it's mainly because we're dehydrated. Mm. And so it's, it's absolutely critical that you hydrate properly and you have a proper hydration strategy for any type of prolonged exercise. So if the sweat can't evaporate, you're not only losing that critical resource, but you're not effectively thermoregulating anymore anyway. So it's tremendously important you have this breathable system. And if you tend to overdress, what's going to happen is, yes, you'll start out cold, but very quickly you're going to warm up. As you warm up, you're going to start sweating. If you can't evaporate that sweat, you're now going to have a wet layer next to the skin. This is going to cause hypersensitization of your skin. And there's debate in the, in the community about how important this is. But a wet skin layer we know is bad from many perspectives, including friction and health, but also it tends to make you feel hotter in the hot and colder in the cold. So within this, you now have a reason or, or, or clarification of why overdressing is so bad. Take the little bit of discomfort at the beginning in order to give yourself much more comfort throughout the majority of your run, your ride, or whatever you do as as uh, your preferred hobby. Mark, do you, do you really find that uh, 
a woman who goes out, say, on a 35-degree, this is Fahrenheit, 40-degree day, it's overcast, there's a little bit of wind, does she ever really get hot? I mean, I know I don't. Even if I'm riding hard and I'm bundled up pretty good, I never reach the point where I really start to seriously perspire. Am I am I odd, or has your um, testing I'm, board I'm a cyclist, so I'm, I'm, and I can <laughs> tell you, I went out the other day. I, I'm actually a road bike, much more than mountain bike, but I went out mountain biking the other day at um, about 25, and by the end of the day, I was down to, not the end of the day, peak of the day, I was down to uh, um, spandex shorts and a T-shirt. I was sweating so much. Now, were any women riding with you? They Very much so. In fact, two, oh, really? probably the two strongest cyclists were girls. Um, no, they, they were exceptional athletes, but they were dressed certainly more than me, um, but they only, both of them only had a single layer on, um, covered their arms and their legs, and they were sweating. So I, I think I only have my experience to fall back on there. But yes, I think you can definitely get to that point. Now, I also must say when I'm road biking, unless it's, it's an exceptional day, that, that's not normally the case for me. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of seeing, if I'm biking with a group, Women always have two layers on, and they tend to be cooler. Um, the guys can generally get by with a single layer. We also, uh, personally, I, I don't use a hat or gloves, typically riding, because I find that then I overheat. Mm-hmm. Now, this brings me to another area, that our hands are tremendous heat exchangers. So if women get, are tending to get cold while they're exercising, wearing gloves could be a very simple way to solve that. And, of course, we already wear a helmet, which takes care of the head, which I believe really loses quite a bit of heat, does it not? It loses tremendous, yeah, unless you close those ventilators, which I never do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you... I, I don't know if you have you know, the ones that close. Yeah, I, I do, I... and mine's permanently in the open position. I, I just put a Gore-Tex helmet cover on, and then I'm fine. Oh, okay. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> I only do that when it's raining because I cycle so hard. <laughs> no. You know, <laughs> you had a, a very nice graphic uh, that you put up that showed the distribution of sweat glands on the body. And we've talked about, of course, the head is, is one of the major places for losing heat, and then it comes down to hands. And then, not so surprising, one of these – the next level down was feet, and and as equally important as feet, I think was was the area right around the waist. Mm, no, no, I, I don't think that's. Did correct. I color this in incorrectly? It looked like it looked like hands. Oh, I think you're looking purely at the distribution of sweat glands. Yes, yes, I am, and, and assuming always, that that has something to do with. Yes, no, that that's. Um, I think that's misleading. We we do have a high area of uh, concentration of sweat glands around the waist, mm-hmm. um, but the waist is not that important in thermoregulation. It is important, however, to keep the organs surrounding the waist at 
their their ideal temperature. So you've got big things like kidneys and livers and spleens and things mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, in that area that need to have good control of their thermal regulation. But they tend not to be used um, in terms of dumping heat very quickly. The hands and feet are. One one of the things I've noticed personally, and, and you mentioned as well, was that when it comes to women, typically we feel quite a bit warmer just before the onset of sweating compared to a man. Why is that? It I, might be. I don't, Gina. Well, I'll, I'll, it, it's a behavioral sex role issue, apparently, that causes women to feel warmer at the onset of sweating. Uh, I just wonder if, the, if that's borne out. I mean, I feel it. Is it borne out in the lab? Um, I don't think this is honestly a women's issue. Okay. Is is it a is it a human body issue though that you very much so yes. And wh- um, and why is that? Is it because the body's making the decision? Okay, blood flow is not going to do it. I've got to do something else. Well, of course, blood flow is what causes you to sweat. What happens is you start peripherally, you start getting down into those very small capillaries, and you start sending large, large quantities of blood to the skin to uh-huh. deliver that liquid for the sweat. And so one thing it could be would be perfusing the shell all of a sudden with a large quantity of blood could warm the shell up and therefore make you feel warmer. Your reference to the capillaries really does make sense because it feels like everything's about to explode. (laughs) And certainly a large volume of blood going through small areas might might give that sensation. Um, Yeah, and I'm trying to be careful here because finding data to support that could be difficult. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but I think a common sense approach w- would see that out, would would agree with that. Yes, that other people probably feel that. Again, yeah. like you say, a lot of this comes back to perception of comfort and, and how much of it is in, in your head and in your behavior rather than in specific physiological measurable points. In terms of comfort, it's all in your head. Comfort's, comfort's in the mind. That's it. Uh, physiology is not, but the way we, in which we interpret our environment is all done in our head. That is an important thing to remember, that your response to exactly the same temperature as me might be very different. Or, or within the female population. Or within the fe- very much so within the female population. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As we know, there there are significant differences in age. There's significant differences in body fitness, in body composition, including things like obesity and perception uh, perceptions as as we tend to get larger. And then there are issues as well about how we, not issues, but some of them are issues indeed, how we perfuse our body skin surface. And as we know, women tend to have many more issues than men around being able to keep things like their extremities, their fingers and toes warm. And this is sometimes a non-thermal influence. Sometimes it is a thermal influence, but often is the case where there's nothing in your thermal regulation driving this, but if you can't get blood flow to the hands and the feet, you're going to feel cold there. 
I was going to say this is sometimes driven just just purely by the way we're feeling. Other times it's a medical issue. Sometimes it becomes chronic. If if we go now, and this might be getting into to sensitive territory in a way, but of course Gore Bikeware is, to my way of thinking, the most technically sophisticated line of cycling clothing available right now uh, in, in both their, their summer and their winter lines. When, when Gore Bikeware looks at these kinds of issues, what, what does it say about where that line may go? I seem to think, and again, I don't know how much you can really say without getting into something proprietary, but for days, for years now, the issue has always been women's clothing is fashionably a little bit different, um, sizing is a little bit different, but frankly, the technical aspects of both men and women's clothing has been the same. Might we see in the future that women's clothing is designed very differently than men's to take into account some of these differences between temperature regulation of men and women? We will definitely see in the future that, that women's clothing will be designed from a technical perspective to be different, as well as the shrink and pink it perspective. I think the styling for women is different, the preference for colors for women are different, but also the way in which we distribute the clothing layers within an individual garment, the materials we use have to be different. The technologies we use are gonna be different. And to those ends, that's why we've spent the last two and a half years really trying to understand the fundamentals of physiology for women. And because there's been so little work done in this area, it's not a quick, it's not an easy process. It's, we're probably planning on three to five years just to get the fundamental information before we can even start the studies that are going to help us develop product. Do you have any samples you can send me? <laughs> At this early stage, no. Nope. <laughs> I that it, it must be really, really neat to be on the the cutting edge of that kind of research uh, because it, it just has fantastic implications. I, I just think of myself as a cyclist and how neat it will be when that day comes that we have clothing that's been designed that specifically. It's it's going to be a major breakthrough, I think, for cyclists. Of course, for other athletic endeavors as well, but I, I concentrate mostly on gore bikewear, so that's, right. that's where well, I'm coming from. From my perspective, as a, I started life as a rocket scientist and have moved through um, most of engineering, through some physics, and now I'm focusing on physiology. And it's really an exciting study to be involved in. Uh, it's something that, that uh, I'm both responsible for um, making happen in Gore, but also something I, I get involved in and individually run. And in fact, in our last study, I was the pilot guy for trying to set this up. And it's really a great, a great program of work we put together that I hope will not only benefit product development, but also appears to start to benefit the fundamental knowledge of the differences between men and women. Well, Mark, is there anything else you'd like to say that, that I haven't covered that you think our female cyclists might want to know about? Well, as I said at the beginning, if you really want to be comfortable throughout your ride, take that little bit of discomfort at the beginning and uh, be a little bit cooler on those cool days. I will uh, try to personally take that advice myself because I know I do tend to overdress. Summer, it's not a problem, but in winter... 
it, it, you're right. Comfort is all about what's going on in your head. Now, do you find, Georgina, when you do overdress that that uh, you feel it within the first 20 minutes or half an hour, and then then you remove a layer? And if you don't feel it there, you never get warm? Uh, I would say yes, that's right. If, I, if I'm going to warm up, it's going to happen pretty quickly. And you're right. If I'm 45 minutes into the ride and I'm still uncomfortable in the sense of being cold, I'm starting to think to myself, I better be careful here. Yeah, because yeah I, maybe I, I dressed have a appropriately or even underdressed for this. Right. And yeah. that, you know, that's one of the things where the style of the cycle clothing is so important. And not to keep plugging Gore, but frankly, it's one of the reasons I like a lot of the Gore products. You can do so much more with them. There are vents, there are zippers, there are sleeves that go up and down. Uh, I know you have a terrific new product coming out in the fall that we're going to be carrying that really gives you some flexibility in venting. Mm-hmm. And and the more versatile the garment is, the more accommodating it can be of the rider's mistakes in dressing. So those two things kind of go hand in hand. The garment knows I'm likely to make a mistake, so it's already accounted for that. <laughs> right, right. I think venting's an important one um, as long as you're not going to get wet. Yes. As soon, as soon as you get wet, this can destroy any any other perception because you get cold so quickly when you're wet. Water yes. being able to conduct significantly more energy than than air, often the, the figure of 20 is used just being the pure difference between uh, water and air. It's very important to stay dry in, in, in the rain, otherwise you're going to be miserable. Well, and, you know, and the the converse, I guess, I guess, of that is true, that in summer when you're riding, I found that if I really feel like I'm starting to overheat, the best relief is taking a water bottle and just pouring it on my forearms. And I have instant cooling that way, and you can almost feel your body temperature start to drop and and relief come back into the system. Very much so. I so say your, your hands are often used um, as, as heat exchangers for the body. And... Um, Believe it or not, a wet pair of gloves is sometimes the most effective way of removing heat very quickly from your body and getting thermal relief. I think we talked back in July about uh, the British Olympic cyclists in Athens using those specially designed chairs in which they immersed their hands and their forearms in ice water. Mm-hmm. And uh, and how effective that was. All the other teams were stopping by to see just what uh, these guys had figured out that they hadn't. Yes, exactly. It, whether it was effective or not didn't matter because it gave them a perceived edge. Right, and we're back to that again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and and that was a, that's a very interesting one. Actually, the, uh, the university with which I work is the primary university for um, the UK sport body. So, uh, of course, in Beijing, it's, there's going to be some really other neat... Um, Devices, gadgets, widgets that that uh, are really going to give some of our athletes an edge. Me being from the UK originally. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Clean air being one of them, I hope. <laughs> well, you never know. Hopefully, hopefully so. Yes. <laughs> Great. Well, thanks very much for the opportunity to uh, talk to your listeners, Georgina. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you very much, and best of luck of luck to you and Gore in this research, and I hope you'll come back again when you're further down the road and give us some more good ideas. Definitely will. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. Take care. Great. Bye-bye. Goodbye.